And now that you all know Psalm 30, ah, children's church. They probably wouldn't be happy with us if we forgot that. What do you think? I said in the first service, I think Carl's glad in terms of me teaching uh, the sermon series on the Psalms. And one more time, I'm not going to mess him up by going to another Psalm. You know, it's dangerous to give a guy like me who tends to be a little on the independent size 150 Psalms to choose from. That could be dangerous. But I'm going to stick to the plan and make Carl very happy, I think, with that. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 30, which you just sang. So you all know it now. You should be very familiar with the teaching of Psalm 30. But just in case you're not, let's pray and ask the Spirit of God to open the eyes of our heart to see the wondrous things of Christ written in his word. Lord God, we ask that you would illumine our minds and our hearts and shape us by your word, your personal word to us that you speak. May we approach things by saying, Lord, here we are, your servants, speak to us your will. May be quick to do your will, to put it into action. Father, grant us understanding and lead us into deeper communion with you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to ask you if you're able to stand, and we're going to read the word upon which our teaching is based this morning, which is Psalm 30. Psalm of David begins, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong, and you hid your face, and I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The beginning of the 20th century, the great writer Gilbert Keith Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, said, the test of all happiness is gratitude. This quote came out of his classic book that is titled Orthodoxy, and it comes in a context where he is mentioning the significance of what he calls enormous emotions which cannot be described. And the strongest emotion was that life was as precious as it was puzzling. We thank people for birthday presents of cigars and slippers. Can I thank no one for the birthday present of birth? Chesterton is giving thanks for life itself. He's giving testimony for what he calls the adventure and the puzzle, the beauty and the puzzle of life itself. He's speaking of being grateful, of cultivating thankfulness for the gift of life itself. And this morning we are looking at Psalm 30, 
which is a classic Thanksgiving psalm. And the psalmist is thankful for the gift of life itself because apparently he's just gone through a terrible ordeal. In this case, the ordeal of an illness. Not war, where he was out as king on the battlefield, but a terrible illness. And God delivered him. And so after, as one commentator puts it, a song of, this is a song of thanksgiving, a song of what he calls reorientation after being disorientation after this tumultuous event, this calamity in his life. And what the psalmist is doing in this case is he is sharing some of the lessons, some of the things he learned from this experience of going through this terrible sickness and then being delivered. Verse 4, he says, give thanks to his holy name. So his focus is on the character of God. And he's sharing with, he's extolling from lessons he has learned, lessons he's learned that cultivate communion with God through learning about and, learn, and knowing the character of God. The title of the psalm, and remember I've shared with you that the titles of the psalms are not, they're not the inspired word of God, but they give us kind of this clue how to read the psalm, so we learn from them. In this case, the title of the psalm is called, it's attributed to David, and it includes kind of what I would call one detail, which we cannot be completely sure about, when it says a song at the dedication of the temple. And if you think about this from a historical standpoint, I say we cannot be completely sure of this because, of course, David died before the actual temple was built. If you remember your biblical history, the temple was built by his son, Solomon. And David wasn't around at the dedication of the temple. But if you look at the literal language here, what's being spoken of here, the literal language in the title is the word house, which, of course, can have many different meanings. Commentators point out that one possibility is that this could be, for instance, when David had a house built for him when he moved to Jerusalem. Or perhaps later they said there was dancing and joy. And of course, that's mentioned in the psalm. We, David speaks of that specifically in the psalm. But, and there was dancing and joy when he set up the Lord's house, this, in this case, in the shape, not yet of the temple, which was future, but of a new tent when the ark of God was brought back to the city of God. In any case, we're told that this is a psalm of David, and one possibility is this is, may even be a song that he wrote in advance, preparing for the dedication, because obviously David knew that his son Solomon was called by God, was anointed, and set up to construct the temple. But in any case, what David is doing is this is practical teaching. He's been through this horrible illness. He's been healed. He's been delivered. And he's sharing with the saints, with the people of God, various lessons, practical lessons that he has learned from this experience. And the psalm basically teaches us two of these lessons that we learn. The first one is that gratitude, because we're talking this is a thanksgiving psalm, that we're Sounds a lot like a hymn, but David's giving praise and thanks after being healed. This is a thanksgiving psalm, and gratitude produces a new perspective, what we're calling a redemptive perspective. And then secondly, we're going to look at the fact that gratitude is the result of restored hope. David's lost hope for a time, and then his hope's restored. And that restored hope leads him, when we come full circle to the end of the psalm, where the psalm closes, where he resolves to say, I will give thanks to the Lord forever. 
So this redemptive perspective, the New Testament tells us that we're transformed. We grow into the fullness of children of God by renewing our minds. We're transformed by the renewal of our minds. And what we need our minds renewed in most is to have a redemptive perspective on our lives. We need to have that redemptive perspective. If we look at the text, verse 1 begins, I will extol you, O Lord. And then he gives the reasons for this exalting God. He gives the reasons for praise. He says, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. He says, O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. Sheol, by the way, is the place of the dead. So this is where we go. Something happened to David that he was close to death. He was close to the grave. And what he says is, you've drawn me up. He's drawing a picture here of almost like the image is that of a well being drawn up. Kind of, you're in a bucket and you're in the bottom of the well and you're being drawn up out of the well. And that's the imagery that he's painting here. And then he says, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. Give thanks to his holy name. Now, one thing that's very interesting in here is obviously David has a great deal of apprehension at this situation. I mean, any of us would have fear and anxiety, fearful of death. But he also mentions, and this is very interesting, as part of his concern, he shudders to think of his enemies gloating over his demise, of his enemies gloating over his potential fall. So he's praising God for not allowing his enemies to gloat over his death. And then verse 4, after the fact, after this is one of the practical lessons that he's teaching, what does he do in verse 4? He calls on the community to join him in giving thanks and praise. Now, I know I read this quote last week, but it's appropriate again here this morning. And by the way, we do learn by repetition, so I'm not going to apologize for this. We all, I know I need lessons repeated to me time after time again, and I bet you we all do. C.S. Lewis, from his reflections on the Psalms, had this great quote that goes as follows. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. The expression is its appointed consummation. Then he goes on to illustrate this. He says, it is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, or to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch, or to hear a good joke and have no one to share it with. The Westminster Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Now that to me is utterly astounding. Because what Lewis is saying here is it is not until you have shared the praise. It is not until you've expressed the praise that the praise is completed. So in other words, if something happens, something good happens, and you keep it to yourself, you don't vocalize it, you don't express it. 
It's not consummated. It's not complete. Lewis is saying, when you share it, when you, that's why, as important as it is, and it is important that we worship Monday through Saturday, please help yourself to a Bible reading plan. I encourage you, read the Bible on your own. But there is something unique, something special. In a sense, the climax, the culmination of the week is coming to the house of God together with the people of God to celebrate as a family. To have God covenantally live and walk amongst us, to speak to us through his word, and for us to have the opportunity to hear and to respond in praise and in confession and in renewal. There is something special about coming together and having God corporately dwell amongst us. So David's experienced this, and what does he say? He says, praise the Lord, oh, you his saints, you holy ones, Let us give thanks to his holy name. Then he begins to share another lesson that gives him this sense of what I call redemptive perspective. Another lesson that gives him kind of a renewed perspective. He picks up in verse 5, for he says, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor for a lifetime. So look, he's switching to giving thanks to his holy name to talking about another lesson that gives him this redemptive perspective. It says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Then he gives, remember I said he's teaching from personal experience. Notice the words. He says, as for me, this is David's testimony. This is the psalmist's testimony. He says, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Commentators call this lesson the lesson of redemptive abandonment. A parent, and notice I said a parent, withdrawing of the presence, the intimate communion with God for the purpose of reclaiming, of training, of disciplining the child of God. This is not punitive, but it is training. It's discipline. See, if you follow with me, the psalmist here, he begins how things were at the start. What Brueggemann calls the orientation phase. He says how good life was. He felt secure. He states at the beginning, you know, he talks about, as for me, verse 7, my mountain. The mountain, one commentator said, is a symbol of grandeur, establishment, and preeminence. He says it stayed strong. He says at this point, God's blessing him. His life's going great. Things are going awesome. And look what he says in verse 6. This is very important. Because in verse 6 he states, I shall never be moved. Perhaps a bit of presumption. And overconfidence, do you think, on the psalmist's part? And then in verse 7, you hid your face. Now we have to be very careful here in terms of our interpretation. Michael Wilcox says of this, he says, Jesus teaches very plainly on several of occasions, John 9 happens to be one of them, that suffering is not necessarily a consequence of sin. Think of John 9, when the disciples asked Jesus, they see the man suffering and they say, who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus says, "Um, time out here, guys. 
neither one, but this is so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Or perhaps think about the book of Job, the entire book of Job, where Job's friends come alongside. At least they did a good job of trying to come alongside. Their efforts were good. But what did they do? They see Job suffering, and they go, hmm, wonder what he did, how he blew it. He must have real, look at this. Everyone's died around him. He's suffering all this. I wonder what he did to tick God off and make him mad. And Wilcox says, be careful. You can't assume that. That is not necessarily the case. And one of the differences here, one of the differences, and it's a key difference here, is notice that in the New Testament, when it's the disciples asking Jesus, hey, I'm looking at their lives and going, who sinned? Or when it's Job, it's friends looking at Job and going, I'm assuming what's going on. Here in this case, it's David, the psalmist, who says, time out, I know what's going on within me. As for me, this is spirit conviction that will lead to his repentance. And he goes, my experience, my testimony is I'm being disciplined for my sin. This is not a person coming alongside and assuming what God is doing in them. We have to be very, very careful here. For as Wilcox says, Jesus teaches very plainly that suffering is not necessarily a consequence of sin, but it may be. At times it is. He says, in this case, the psalmist is under no illusions. His own mystery, misery, remember this is his testimony, is the result of God's discipline. The psalmist's slide toward the pit began when his confidence in God became self-confidence. He's saying, look at my life, let me pass on to you, let me share with you what I'm learning about myself. I have the tendency to be self-reliant, I have the tendency to be overconfident, and I have the tendency to presume. And what does he do? This is, he's sharing, he's saying, here's a redemptive perspective. This illness I went through, don't assume this is the case with everybody, that would be wrong, but for me, this was the corrective discipline of God. For me, this was an instance of like Jesus as the good shepherd having his hundred sheep. One is wandering away. What does Jesus do? He tells the 99, stay put. I'm going to reclaim you. Friends, this is, we have a tendency to look at the training or the correction of the discipline of God as a bad thing. Can I tell you, it is an awesome thing. You want the discipline of God in your life because you want God when you go off on your own, you want the living God to chase you down. You don't want, here's what you don't want. Here's the scariest experience. When you have a Romans 1 experience that says he gave them over to their sin. God not caring about what you do is the scariest thing on the, on the earth. You want God as a good shepherd to love you, to not be indifferent towards you, to value you, and to care about you enough that he will pursue you when you wander. Why come thou fount is one of my favorite hymns. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. I can share with you that's certainly my experience. I'm a key wanderer, and thankfully, God is not a tame lion, as C.S. Lewis calls him, and he chases us down. Remember God's aim. He is not out to get us. God's aim is communion with his children. God's aim is to be in an intimate, covenantal 
relationship with his children. Tremper Longman commenting on this says that although his present testimony, the testimony of the psalmist, affirms God's blessing, he remembers a fateful time in his life when he presumptuously claimed, I shall never be shaken. And God did not let such a brazen claim to independence go unchecked. He redemptively abandoned the psalmist. The abandonment is singled in the phrase that the psalmist uses, he hid his face. He turned his presence away from the psalmist, but this move was redemptive in that the feeling of divine absence caused the wandering psalmist to run back into the arms of God. And it began when he said he had the feeling of dismay. Kind of like the prodigal son coming to his senses. Dan Allender writes, he says, the psalmist remembers the complacency he felt, which resulted from the confidence he had in his own strength. The psalmist said nothing could happen to him. He was too good, too strong, too competent, too powerful. But when God abandoned David by hiding his face, God stripped away from David his illusion of self-confidence. Predictably, the result of this abandonment was loss of hope. But where did this loss of hope drive David? Where did the loss of hope propel David? Did it lead him to self-pity and despair? No. It drove him into the arms of God. Verse 8, David gives his experience in his testimony. He says, to you, O Lord, I ran. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to you, O Lord, I plead for mercy. He says, what profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? So hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. The training of God, what did it do? It drove David to a deeper communion with God. It deepened his walk, his prayer life with God. And remember, David is teaching here. So what do we learn from his experience? He is giving redemptive perspective that comes from the gratitude he feels for being healed and delivered. He runs back into the arms of God. To you, O O Lord, I cry. And what brings this about? He has his hope that was lost at first, restored. And look at how gratitude is the result of restored hope. We come full circle to verse 11. You have turned my mourning into dancing. I wonder what would happen if we were so thankful and so filled with praise. Would people think we weren't Presbyterian anymore? If all of a sudden you turned my mourning into... I guess I'm not sure we should take that literally. What do you think? But David is... This is what restored hope does for David. You've turned my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. There he is once again. What is it that consummates the praise? It's the expression of the praise. The praise is not finished until it is expressed. So David is going that my glory may sing your praises and refuses to be silent. I will give thanks to your holy name. He has come full circle. 
And this restored hope is leading him to joyful intimacy and praise of God. Dan Allender again writes, he says, hope in this case has two directions, if you will. One earthly or horizontal and the other heavenly or vertical. And he writes, it is not that one is evil and the other good. They both can be good, but the heavenly hope must envelope the earthly hope in order to give it value. He says, the earthly or horizontal hope is a confident desire that things are going to get better in this life. But he says, this is fragile because decay and death are always around the corner. But heavenly hope is a vision of redemption in the midst of the decay. Its source is in God, and its focus is that we will become more and more like him and that we will always be with him. And of course, how is this hope even possible? How can we have this kind of perfect heavenly hope that allows us to live with honesty, intimacy, authenticity in the midst of the fragile nature of our earthly hope? See, we don't have a promise of our earthly hopes being fulfilled. So how do we live with this heavenly hope? See, we have something that David couldn't see yet, or at least David couldn't see in its fullness of. He got a glimpse of, but he couldn't see as clearly as we can see where we live on this side of history, on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because again, as Allender writes in Cry of the Soul, he says, Jesus experienced the fallen world with sadness. He suffered when he was tempted, and he was tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet that was not even his greatest suffering. His greatest suffering came on the cross. And on the cross, his most intense suffering was not physical. It stemmed from his sense of complete abandonment by his father. We use not think of Christ's suffering as a pretense or a fiction. His pain and distress that he was experiencing in his humanity as a human being, representing fellow human beings, was incomprehensible. The abandonment that he felt and Jesus' consequence, intense, agonizing, loneliness and despair were very real. The psalmist tells us that what David went through when God hid his face from him, was only temporary. And it was aimed at reclaiming him. It was aimed at restoring him and enhancing his community, his communion with God. That redemptive aim gave David, the psalmist, perspective and hope. That restored hope led him to be thankful. But that hope could only be fulfilled That hope could only be the kind of heavenly hope that can envelope our fragile earthly hopes if David's greater descendant, if David's greater son, Jesus Christ, was left completely alone on the cross for you and I. See, again, the despair of the cross not only gives us a model for embracing loss and the assurance that we are not alone in facing it, But more importantly, it transforms all human suffering. 
Allender writes Jesus' cry of despair. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Transforms all human suffering as a promise. For it is a down payment on heavenly hope. Jesus suffered and so will we. But Jesus has been there before us. And he waits for us certainly at the end of the sorrow. He has been perfected and resurrected through suffering. And so will we. The cross and the cross alone is what transforms all human suffering from a meaningless waste to a condition for glory, which he chose to pioneer as the first fruits of what will one day be a harvest of our own glorification. This is why some of the most challenging and amazing words come from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction, part of me just wants to stop there and go, Paul, you've got to be kidding me. But read 2 Corinthians 11 and you will see Paul is no hypocrite. Look at the real suffering he went through. And yet he has this perspective because his hope is restored. And this heavenly hope is enveloping. He's clothed with gladness. His mourning has been turned into dancing. And he is able to move even in the midst of his suffering and say this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. An eternal glory out of all proportions as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For the psalmist, this restoration of hope has turned mourning into dancing. It didn't make it into dishonesty. It didn't make it into a superficial communion. It made it into a real, deep intimacy that was refined and cultivated in the fire of real suffering that made his communion with God authentic. And God's aim is union with his children, with his church. Christ is the head. We are the body. We are always united. And God is not doing anything that isn't meant to enhance that experience of union. For even this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us a glory out of all proportion. Friends, I truly believe that what we need as a church is a bigger heart, enlarged heart, and a bigger, wider imagination to be able to have this redemptive perspective and a restored hope that even in the midst of suffering, that we don't deny, that we don't sugarcoat, that we're very real, that we're very authentic about, but that turns our mourning into dancing, that cultivates gratitude, that gets us to say, I will give thanks to the Lord forever and cultivates union and communion with God. Father, teach us to see your aim is to deepen and have us experience always our union with yourself through Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and the agency of the Spirit. 
Lord, that is an amazing concept and one we need to continually grow into and cultivate. Thank you that you're a God who chases after us. Thank you that you're a God who pursues us. Thank you you are a God who runs after us. We are prone to wander. And I pray, Lord, that we do feel it. We pray, Lord, you take our hearts, as the hymn writer said, take our hearts and seal it, and seal it for the one above. In Jesus' name, amen.